Well, good afternoon, everybody. Happy holidays. Talking through what it looks like to be absolutely consumed by an activity. I had the privilege one time of attending a concert, an outdoor concert, with the renowned cellist Yo-Yo Ma. And I loved watching him. I was so struck by his intensity, his um, exuberance, his joy as his fingers went up and down that beautiful instrument. He was consumed. I've also watched people in the kitchen. I myself am not a good cook, but maybe some of you said cooking. I love to watch a person who's absolutely consumed by creating a meal. They have this vision of what they want it to all be like, all the seasonings and the textures, etc. They flourish, they move around. That's you, that's you, awesome. And then I like to eat what they made, so that's the part that I consume. But it's fun to watch a person consumed in the kitchen. My husband, I love to watch him when he's shooting free throws. He is a really good free throw shooter. And he was at the last gathering. And I mentioned that he had shot uh, 96 out of 100 at the local Y. He was here, and he texted me. I have to tell you what he said after that gathering. He said, it was 99 out of 100, <laughs> not 96. I did 96 many times. One time I did 67 in a row, and another time 54 after he missed one. The house of God must stand on truth at all times. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry, 99. But when we're consumed with any kind of endeavor, time just seems to fly by, and we're not easily distracted. In those moments, nothing else matters except the task at hand. Well, today I want to explore together what it would mean to actually be consumed by worship, to be consumed in worship. We're going to try to understand what worship even means. And you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about this. If you've been coming to church for a while, you know that it's something we come in and we say that we're doing every week. But I grew up with a lot of uh, you know, confusion about what worship is and what it's not and why we do it and all of the you know, reasons for it. So let's dig into this. You know, Pastor Charlotte Scanlon Gamble is a woman preacher from England, and I heard her one time say that there's two kinds of people in God's house. So sitting here today, there's two kinds of people. There are the consumers and there are the consumed. And here, here's how she defined it. To be consumed is to be fully absorbed, to be devoured completely, for you to disappear because you've been swallowed up by something bigger. Now, a consumer, on the other hand, those are people who go to a place for the sole purpose of getting what they need. And sadly, that's how a lot of people go to church. In fact, true confessions, some of us, me included, sometimes sit in church and we actually kind of evaluate it. And when we leave, we rate it. You know, we say, you know, what would you give the worship today on a scale of 1 to 10? I don't know, Patrick seemed a little off today. <laughs> or we might, we might talk about the message and say, oh, that Jared, he's so funny. But we're rating the service and we're thinking that we're observers watching this experience. And then we just kind of go on with our lives. Human beings are worshipers. We're going to give our devotion to something or someone. You know, this weekend I heard a woman, one of the deadheads who's here for the concerts, interviewed on the television, and she said she'd been to over 300-some Grateful Dead concerts. And then she said this statement, every concert with them is a worship experience. Very interesting. Worship is actually simply our response to what we value most. 
everybody worships something or someone, and our creator is actively seeking genuine worshipers. In fact, Jesus was asked about worship one time, and he said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. True worship, if you're looking for a definition, is essentially, essentially our response to God for who he is and what he has done. It's our response, and it's an active response where we declare with passion God's worth, and we do it with a sense of intensity. Worship is not just a feeling or a mood. It's actually a declaration, and it's a verb. It's something we do, not something we just sit and watch passively. You can't watch people worship. You engage in worship. Now, you and I can worship God anywhere, anytime. We can be all alone. We can be in our car or in the shower, in our family room, uh, kneeling beside our bed. We could be in a small group of people. Or we also have what we call corporate worship, which is when we come together in God's house. And specifically, that's what I want to focus on today, when we come together as a community here at Soul City Church. You and I you know, need to understand that how we approach God's house is extremely significant. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, we read, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Now, some of us, and I admit guilt here myself at times, uh, show up for a worship gathering on Sunday, not having thought too much about God before we got here, or maybe even throughout the week. In fact, if you have young children and you're frantically trying to get ready and not be late for church, it can be kind of an anxious time. Did you know that more families have fights on Sunday morning on their way to church than almost any other time of the week? And then you, you know, whether you have kids here or not, you get in here and sometimes you're a little bit late or a little bit, you know, frantic, and you're not all that ready to sit down and worship God. In fact, you may be thinking, you know, it's a miracle I'm even here. God, I showed up, okay? Give me an A for effort. I'm, I'm here. And I remember the year, you know, working with young children when my uh, older daughter only would wear one dress to church. This went on for months. She would only wear her Minnie Mouse dress. She was like three. And even if it was dirty, we had to pull it out of the laundry, and I'd try to argue with her and say, maybe we could try something else today. No, no, no. I was embarrassed. I thought, you know, people thought she only had one dress. But that's all she would wear, and it wasn't worth the fight. You know, Pastor Louis Giglio has some challenging words for us because some of us think we can just flip a switch when we walk into church and begin to worship. Well, here's what he said. Most of my life, I thought you went to church to worship. But now I see that the better approach is to go worshiping to church. Church is a lot better when our meetings are filled with people who have been pursuing God for six days before they get there. Corporate worship works best when we arrive with something to offer God as opposed to coming only to get something for us, which is that consumer mentality. To help us unpack what it means to be a consumed true worshiper, we're going to look at a story in scripture, and I want to give you some background first. This story is going to show us that true worship involves two things. It involves a sense of awe and also a spirit of abandon. We're going to go back to the time of King David. Back in that era, the central place of worship was the tabernacle. Now, the previous king before David was Saul. And under Saul's reign, worship had been sadly neglected. In fact, one piece of holy furniture was actually separated from the tabernacle. It had been captured by the Philistines years earlier. 
This sacred box was called the Ark of the Covenant, and it was essentially a symbol of the presence of God. Saul and most of his people thought that the Ark was no big deal. But now David is king, and he commits to saying, I want to bring the Ark back to the center of the city as a visible reminder to everyone of who the true God is, the only true God, and who we should be worshiping as king. Now, you may be wondering, as I did, what this ark looked like. In Exodus 25, we learned that it was a rectangular box, almost four feet long and about uh, two feet high. It was constructed of wood and overlaid with pure gold. So let's take a look at a couple photos and art, really artist renderings of what people think it looked like. This is a picture. The people in white are the priests, the Levites, who you can see are carrying the ark on poles. We'll talk more about that in a moment. That's how it was supposed to be transported. The next picture is a little odd, but it shows like what was inside the ark because you can't, you can't see inside. There were three items. The jar there represents manna. That was the kind of bread-like substance that God provided for the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. So that's like a memory of the manna. Those two stone tablets are the Ten Commandments that Moses came down from the mountain with. And then there's a rod there with a little leaf on it. Aaron was another leader of that era, and he had a rod and it budded at one point. So that was in the ark. One more photo shows it to you from the exterior, overlaid with gold, and those poles, those are gold rings that the pole goes through. Now, God clearly stated in his instructions, we can read this back in Exodus, that the ark was to be handled only by the priests, and the poles were to be carried on their shoulders. So sacred was the ark that no one was allowed to touch it or look inside it, or they would die. And God made that very, very clear. So David knows that the people have been ignoring God for a long, long time. Their hearts had drifted far from worship. So let's look at this story. Grab the Bible in the uh, seat pocket in front of you or under your seat. And we're going to go to the book of 2 Samuel, page 211. 211 if you're using one of those Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now this story has really three different acts to it. We're going to uh, uncover all three acts. This could be a great movie. There's three major characters, and only one of them was a true worshiper, which you'll pick up on, I think, pretty quickly, starting with verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died right there beside the ark of God. Okay, let's pause there a moment. Rather a shocking story. Uzzah is struck down by God. He dies right there beside the ark. This stunned all the people who were there and certainly stunned David. But all these centuries later, it stuns us too, doesn't it? I mean, I think, well, what was so bad? He just kind of, it, it was starting to fall off the cart and so he corrected it. God just seems so mean. Well, writer Eugene Peterson helped me get perspective on this chapter. He reminds us that Uzzah's action was not just a mistake of the moment. 
more than likely it was a pattern. It was a pattern of his lifelong obsession with managing the ark. Uzzah was trying to take control of God. He had long ago lost sight of who was really in charge, but our God made it absolutely vividly clear that he will not be managed and that he expects us to obey his instructions. As we already learned from the guidelines in Exodus, the ark was never to be transported on a cart. The only way it was to be moved was on the shoulders of the priests. Never was it to be touched by human hands. But Uzzah thought he had a better plan, and he took a more convenient route. He did not revere God's name nor God's plan. He may have been a priest, but his heart was actually very far from his creator. And this can easily happen to any of us. Slowly, over time, we lose sight of what it means to be appropriately reverent toward God. And we compromise, and usually at first it's just in very small ways, we compromise in our obedience, thinking that we know better. Whenever you and I believe that we know better, we're a lot like Uzzah. In fact, we're most like him when we lose our sense of awe about God. That's the first ingredient of true worshipers. True worshipers worship with awe. They know that God is absolutely worthy of our total reverence. We sing a song sometimes based on a verse in the book of Revelation. That verse says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Some of us need to learn from the mistakes of Uzzah. He lost sight of the reverence our God deserves. He became too casual about God's power and much too flippant about God's instructions. True worship brings us to a place of holy expectancy, moments when all we can say is, wow, God, wow, I am undone. You are God, and I clearly am not. And I believe that you and I should go through life saying wow frequently as we wake up to God's wonders. When we are in summer and these gorgeous days we've been having, I don't know if every two seconds you don't want to say, wow, God, something's wrong with you. As you walk in the beauty, as you see flowers, as you see a sunset, as you eat the fresh fruits and vegetables of summer, I mean, sweet corn and raspberries, come on, it's awesome. Or even as you have moments with your family or loved ones, when you see a two-year-old trying to, trying to walk and just watch them and their delight, all of these things lead us to a place where we say, God, you are so remarkable. I give you praise. And I hope you're not too cool to say wow often. I have a friend who says, I want to be counted among the easily impressed. And I would like to be um, among that kind of company. I hope you're growing more and more to be a person who pays attention to creation and to moments of joy with the people you love. A person who quickly says, wow, God, you are more than worthy of my praise, and I give you thanks right now. Well, now we're going to move to Act 2 of the story, where we see that awe needs to be accompanied by something called abandon. Let's go back to our story. David was so freaked out by Uzzah dying, which any of us would have been, that he waits three months to try this again. It's like, okay, we're going to move the ark to Jerusalem. We're going to do it right this time. So let's look at 2 Samuel 6, uh, the second part of verse 12. 
So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, look how careful he's being. They'd only taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, now this is David's wife, okay? This is his wife, and she is the daughter of Saul, the former king. Michael was watching from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Do you see David's incredible passion as he worshiped? He danced before the Lord with all his might, and there was singing and shouting and trumpets. In his obedience to the Lord's instructions, because this time David did get it right, and in his obedience, he was free. See, obedience actually leads to great freedom. Out of the genuine joy of his heart, David danced. He even replaced his royal robes with a new outfit, a garment called a linen ephod, which we are told was essentially underwear. I'm not suggesting you do that next week when you come to our gathering, but that's what David did. Now, I've often been moved when I read, especially in the Psalms, about David's exuberance and expression in worship. He was fully alive toward God. He was in a vital relationship with him, which was trusting and daring and bold. David's worship was emotional. In the 69th Psalm, he wrote, zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal for your house. Worship without emotion, I believe, is an aberration. Our response to God includes our feelings as well as our minds, and it engages a full range of emotion. Dallas Willard says that it is typical of worship that we put every possible aspect of our being into it, all of our sensuous, conceptual, active, and creative capacities. All that we are is engaged. How can you and I be stoic if we really see the goodness and greatness of our God? How can we be stoic? Well, this brings us to the dancing thing. Some of you are getting really nervous right now. Maybe you feel quite conservative and restrained when it comes to movement in front of other people. I come from a Scandinavian uh, Swedish background. Believe me, those people do not dance at all. Very, very stoic. Well, here's how Eugene Peterson described David's passionate display. He says, David danced. In God, David had access to life that exceeded his capacity to measure or control. He was on the edge of mystery, of glory, and so he danced. When we're going about our work responsibly and steadily, we walk. But when we're beside ourselves with love, shaken out of preoccupation with ourselves, we dance. David danced. If David had merely been carrying out his religious duties or conducting a political ceremony, he would have walked in solemn procession before the ark, leading it into Jerusalem with dignity. But this was no duty. He was worshiping responding to the living God. Sometimes we just got to dance. 
Now, children are our best teachers uh, in this regard because of their incredible sense of freedom. I remember one summer we took our girls when they were little on a vacation and we were eating at an outdoor place and there was a live band. And no one invited anyone to necessarily dance, but my daughters, when they were done eating, got up out of their seats and they just started going for it. Completely free, having a blast, people were smiling, it was just great. The next summer we went to the same place Another live band was playing, and I watched as my younger daughter leapt to her feet, went out and did the same thing. My older daughter held back, and I, I watched her eyes, and she was looking around, and she was observing other people. She was wondering, is it okay to dance? Is anybody else dancing? What will they think of me if I dance? And she never really joined her younger sister. And I thought how sad it is that as we age, we become so much more inhibited. We lose our sense of freedom. We're so much more aware of what other people might think. God calls for worship that involves our whole being. In fact, the Hebrew word that we translate from worship means to prostrate. That means to lay down. But scripture describes a wide variety of physical expressions when it comes to worship, including standing and kneeling, clapping, lifting the hands, lying prostate, uh, lifting or bowing the head, and dancing. And our physical expression should be consistent with the inner spirit of worship. So let's say we're confessing. Let's say we are broken because we know we've done something that's not pleasing to God. Kneeling might be the most appropriate, and you know, bowing the head as we come to God. But if we're celebrating, we might want to clap, we might want to lift our hands, we might even want to dance. Now here's where some people are very quick to point out that we all come from different backgrounds, different temperaments, different cultures. This is true, and we need to be respectful of that. But I also believe we need to take some little risks along the way physically. I would suggest that worship without any physical expression is limited. I want to show you, I've done this before, I beg your mercy, but I need to show you another photo of my dog. Okay, here's my, my dog. This is Beanie. Yeah, I know, she's really cute. But I would tell you that Beanie is a very happy dog, but she doesn't look very happy. Does she see that? That's her permanent look on her face. <laughs> and I often want to say to her, if you're so happy, would you please inform your face? Because we can't tell. <laughs> and you know, this may seem a stretch, but it's the same way with worship. Some of us say, oh, I love God. I, I'm devoted to him. I'm passionate. And you look at them and you want to say, really? You know, is there any indication in your countenance, in your body, in your expression of how you feel on the inside? Maybe you're new to worship gatherings. Maybe this is even your first time here or you haven't come very long. And I admit, when you walk into a group that is worshiping God, it can seem very weird and strange. You wonder, like, why do those people have their hands in the air? Or what, what are they so excited about? What are they energized by? We don't sing much in our culture, and worship is more than singing, but that's kind of the first thing you notice when you walk in uh, to a new church or a worship gathering. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you would say, honestly, I don't fully engage. I'm, I'm rather stoic when it comes to my worship expression. Well, here's some thoughts. Here's the deal. The next time the Spirit prompts you to take a little step, maybe the first thing is to uncross your arms, okay? So some of you are standing like this, maybe just kind of let those go, okay? Or come out of the pockets if you're a pocket person. Release 
Release them. Maybe at some point you will be ready to clap or maybe hold your hands like right here as a sign of surrender. Maybe in a decade or so you could raise one of those arms, you know, it's just, it's just a step. I know we're standing very close together here, so dancing is not really a great option unless you want to get out into the aisles. But this is a gradual process of growth, coming out of your comfort zone, step by step, taking some little steps. You know, just like Uzzah didn't die from all of a sudden, from one act of disobedience, David didn't dance all of a sudden. He dwelled on and delighted in the things of God, thoughts about God. His expression in public worship was simply the result of practicing God's presence in moments all throughout the week. We don't show up on Sunday and immediately are able to turn it on. Our worship in God's house is a reflection of all the moments you and I have throughout the week. Moments where we remind ourselves of who God is, who we're not, moments when we thank him, moments when we praise him. And then when we come in here together, that's just icing on the cake. We're like, okay, now I've been doing this all week long. Now I get to do it with you know, other people. Now we can celebrate together. David discovered, however, that other people can be critical of our abandonment in worship. Remember his wife watching from the window. She despised David for what she considered to be inappropriate, undignified behavior. She thought David ought to look more kingly, to surround himself with pomp and circumstance, to be more aloof and inaccessible. Michael was embarrassed, let's just say it. She was embarrassed by his exuberance. And she was also filled with contempt. So let's look at Act 3, what happened when David walks in the house after what could be argued was a peak experience for him, right? He brings the ark all the way back to Jerusalem. It's been gone for years. So you would think he's going to come home and share this with his spouse. This is going to be a great moment, right? Let's look at verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house. This is a little dig right there, okay? <laughs> the Lord chose me when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Michael's words to David just drip with sarcasm and cynicism. She accuses him of being vulgar and disrobing in front of everyone, but what's more important for us to see is that her own heart couldn't feel joy or abandon or freedom because her feelings for God were dead. In many ways, she was just as dead as Uzzah was. She couldn't begin to relate to David's freedom and love for God because she was so far from free herself. And therefore, she mocked David's dancing because he was alive and reckless and daring and true worship was foreign to her. So when are you and I most like Michael? When we are more concerned with our own image, with what other people think, than with our hearts before God. We're also like her when we look at other people who are consumed with worship and we might think, you know, you're a little over the top, that's a little much for me, and, and kind of evaluating other people. And we are like Michael 
when we look at worship as just a duty, a dutiful display, going through the motions with no feelings for God. God hates it when we come to him out of a sense of duty. He would actually prefer we not come at all. If, you're, if we're just going to go through the motions and be like robots, because essentially we're telling him that our feelings for him are dead when we do that. David made it very clear that his celebration was before the Lord. I love his statement. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He understood to the depths of his soul, and this is the essence if you get nothing else today, he understood to the depths of his soul that life and worship were not all about him. That's what he got. He realized that this was not about him. It was about God. Uzzah's eyes were on his own agenda. Michael's eyes were on herself and other people in particular. But David's eyes were on the Lord. That's what he was focusing on. My friends, worship is the time when you and I interrupt our endless preoccupation with ourselves. That's really what happens. And we turn our attention toward God, and we focus on him, and we energetically give him our love and our gratitude. And we find out something very important. We find out that worship is what we were made for. You know, we think that we're giving something to God, and we are. It's our response to him. But you know what the mystery is that I'll never quite understand? When we engage in worship, when we're consumed by worship, God gives something to us. We are enriched. We are filled with joy and peace. We are repurposed. We feel aligned. We feel grounded and centered because it's what we were made for. God is seeking true, consumed worshipers. And in order to do that, we have to have the appropriate sense of awe and abandon. So on a very practical level, I just want to give you a couple steps you can take. Maybe you say, you know, I think I need to grow in my sense of awe. I've become a little too casual or flippant about God and about worship. Well, here's two ideas. First of all, pay attention. Just wake up throughout your week. Notice things. Don't just survive through life. Savor moments. Look at people in the eye. Really look at them. Appreciate beauty. Whenever you see it, I have a friend who when she sees something, she either whispers or says it in her mind. She kind of looks up to heaven. She goes, I saw that. I saw that. That was really great, God. Thank you. Really awesome. Really beautiful. So pay attention. Another thing is, it may seem obvious, but read your Bible. You will grow in your awe of God when you read this book because you'll discover his wisdom, his incomparable wisdom. You'll discover a thread of grace that goes throughout this entire book. This morning, I've been reading in the book of Psalms, and my reading this morning just happened to be in Psalm 24, and I just want to read you how it begins. This is what I read at about 6 o'clock this morning. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. That was enough for my whole day. Say, wow, God, everything I see you made. So read this book. Now, maybe you say, okay, I also kind of need some growth in my abandon, my, my freedom, my expression in worship. Well, here's a few thoughts for that. First, experiment with physical expression. Okay, take a little step, whatever it might be, and try to focus on God, not on you or your neighbor. 
Now here's my experience. I don't know if I'm the only one, but when I'm worshiping, there's a couple different voices going on in my head. Uh, part of me is focused on God, and I keep trying to do that. But there's another voice that says, oh no, if I, if I put my arm up, um, is, are people going to think I'm weird? Or I might bump somebody, we're standing really close. Or, you know, I, I just think, I overthink it. And whenever you start to think about yourself or other people in worship, simply redirect. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Just say, okay, God, I'm sorry, back to you, because this is about you. It's not about me. And a couple final thoughts. When you're walking into church on any given Sunday and you're about to take your seat, whatever mood you've been in before, whatever is on your uh, to-do list, whatever you're anxious about, just pause for a moment, just before you start. Take a breath. Breathe in and breathe out and say, God, I'm here and I want to be here. I, like, I like really want to be here now. I don't want to think about an hour from now. I want to be here and I want to focus on you because that's what you deserve. So just have that 30 seconds kind of redirection as you first come in and engage in the entire experience of the gathering, including times of prayer. Even if you haven't prayed to God in a long time, engage. Just say what, what you need to say to him in your heart. Uh, the giving time, even if you give online or another point, that's a moment of worship. And even as the bucket just goes by to say, thank you, God, for all your good gifts. Connecting with other people is a part of the gathering. Um, even if you don't know very many people, the moments when we look in each other's eyes and say, I'm glad you're here, and what's your name, and introduce ourselves. And in the teaching time, to be open and receptive and say, God, what do you have to teach me here today? And finally, remember, in the big picture, in the big picture, we worship God with how we live our lives. The choices we make, the things we say, the way we treat other people, the way we love other people, our level of generosity and kindness, all of that is in the big picture, a part of how we worship God. We're not going to get worship right completely until heaven. But between now and then, we can practice. We can keep redirecting. We can keep trying to open ourselves up and say, God, I really, truly want to grow and give you the, the adoration that you deserve. I want to be that kind of person, God, and get the focus off of me. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to pray together. It's always a little awkward. We're going to sing a song, and it's a little awkward to worship after you've heard a teaching about worship, because now you're thinking, oh boy, how am I going to do, and everybody's going to be watching. So my only advice, because I'll be thinking the same thing, my only advice is keep redirecting. Uh, whenever you get the focus on you or the person in your row, just say, sorry, God, and, and go back to. And a, a great way to do that is to really drink in the lyrics of what you're saying, the truth of these lyrics. And this song is about how faithful God is. We're going to declare together his faithfulness and do it with as much energy and compassion and enthusiasm as you can. Let's pray. Magnificent creator, we thank you for your presence in this room. We thank you for the freedom we have in our country, which we celebrate this weekend, freedom to worship you, God, without any restrictions. And we pray that you will help us to be more consumed worshipers. We know that's what you deserve, God. We want to be more in awe of you. We want to be more reverent, recognizing how incredibly other you are than us. God, forgive us for times when we get too casual and flippant and treat you just like our best buddy. You are God. You are the Holy One. 
You are the sovereign creator, and we honor you. And Father, I pray that we will grow in our abandon as well, that we'll just free ourselves up a little bit and express to you what's really going on in our hearts. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for this community. And now, God, we're going to worship you. We're going to declare together and agree together right now in these next few minutes that you are a faithful God. In the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen.